Josh Donaldson, Chris Bryant, Trevor Story, Shohei Otani. The names in the fantasy news just keep on coming, and we'll talk about them all next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September the 7th. It's show number 34 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday news and comment edition for you. We'll have a ton of player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at Trevor Story's big week and his big year. Returns to the Majors by Chris Bryant, Francisco Mejia, and Victor Robles, and more news from the National League. And from the American League, Jock Thompson looks at Josh Donaldson in Cleveland's lineup, Aroldis Chapman not in New York's lineup, Shohei Otani maybe in LA's lineup, and more news from the American League. We'll also have our commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In our frequent flyer comment, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Houston right-handed starter Josh James. And in our pitcher matchup segment, Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick looks at a battle of National League East stars. Philadelphia right-hander Aaron Nola goes to New York to face the Mets right-hander Noah Syndergaard. And Greg will look at other weekend matchups as well. Later in the show, I'll have our weekly talk with Todd, asking Todd Zola about ranking this year's first-rounders for next year drafts. And finally, in Master Notes, I'll have the August Quiz. It's another Big Friday News and Comment Edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Wednesday was indeed a storybook night for home runs, and that means we gotta talk some baseball. Well, on Wednesday night, that was September 5th, if you're keeping track in your diary, Trevor Story of Colorado hit three home runs at Coors Field, including one that set a new distance record in the StatCast era. Story's first swat came in the bottom of the first, a 459-foot solo shot to left off Giants starter Andrew Suarez. Story swung so hard at that one that he literally spun himself right off his feet. Story also hit his second tater off Suarez. It was the record breaker, a towering blast with an exit velocity of 111.9 miles an hour and a launch angle of 28 degrees. That combination led to a 505-foot home run, the shot surpassing the previous StatCast record by one foot. Giancarlo Stanton smoked a 504-footer back in August of 2016, also at Coors Field. Media reports said Story's home run ball returned to earth in the concourse way beyond the left field fence and bounced onto the roof of a concession stand. The third homer, that was in the sixth, a plain old 416-footer also to left. According to BaseballReference.com's Play Index database, the three-home run game was the first of Story's career, the 13th in the big leagues this season, and the 582nd in Major League history. Story had nine previous two-homer games, five of them this season, including one just on Monday, two days before his big three-homer event. We'll talk more about Trevor Story in just a minute as we lead off our show with our Market Watch Player News Reports. Jock Thompson is standing by with the American League, and leading off, it's the National League Report, and our old friend, Baseball HQ analyst, Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. I mentioned in the opening, uh, 
Trevor Story had a big night on Wednesday night, uh, three home runs, including a 505-foot blast. It's the longest ever tracked by StatCast. He beat Giancarlo Stanton by a foot. I think Stanton had a 504-foot home run back in 2015. But uh, Trevor Story, three home runs in a night is a, is an interesting story. You should forgive the expression. But he's actually having a really good year anyway. Yeah, Trevor Story is having a, having a fantastic season. Overall, at this point, uh, to, to date, 31 home runs, 95 RBIs, 298 batting average, uh, 920 OPS. So hitting very well for the season overall. You put 31 home runs and 25 stolen bases, that's one heck of a ball player uh, in today's terms. It is. Uh, by Baseball HQ valuation methods, he's a $40 player, which puts him in the top three or four in the National League, probably top five or six in all of baseball as far as hitters go. And uh, we knew this guy could hit home runs, uh, and he's certainly doing that. And I remember back when he uh, had his rookie campaign, he was quite a story, uh, had some stolen bases that year. He kind of fell off last year, and this seems to be a rebound year, and maybe we're just starting to see the real Trevor Story. Yeah, I think that's possible. His contact rate is up about 10% this year, uh, 62% contact rate last season, uh, 73%, 72% at the moment this season. Uh, so really coming around and beginning to make better contact than he was. He's still a kind of a Coors ball player, if you really take a look and, and break those stats down. Uh, when he's hitting in Coors Field, 316, 316 batting average, uh, 16 home runs. I had the ones from last night, 19 home runs, 50 RBIs. Uh, 1048 OPS on the road, not so much. 275 batting average, nine homers, 33 RPIs, 772 OPS. So the kind of guy that uh, if he's playing at home, you definitely want him in your lineup. There's not going to be anybody any better. But on the road, you might be able to find uh, someone better at the position if you're able to, to do some streaming. Boy, I, I wonder if you could, uh, depending on how um, small your rosters are in the league you're in, uh, even on the road, those are fairly decent numbers for a shortstop. They are. I mean, those aren't bad. 275, nine homers, 772. Those are, are certainly serviceable numbers on the road. And uh, the other split I, I wonder if uh, you've noticed is uh, the platoon split, left-handed pitching versus right-handed pitching. He's always been a basher against Southpaw's 1034 OPS last year against the 668 against right-handers. That's a 320-some point, 360-some point difference. Uh, this year he's closed the gap. He's uh, over 1,100 against left-handers, but he's raised his uh, OPS versus right-handers up to 831. So he's put 200, 180 points, something like that, on uh, against right-handed pitching, and that's going to be a real key thing if he uh, aspires to be a terrific fantasy player or just a terrific ball player in general, to close that gap, maintain the good hitting against left-handers, but figure it out against right-handers. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, we're, we're seeing a guy who's, who's coming into his skills, learning how to play the game, 25 years old, and uh, those splits, it looks as though there's some opportunity to close those splits. Uh, and as he does that, this could be one of the top uh, top fantasy players uh, in baseball. I'd look at him really high in next year's draft. I was going to ask, uh, when you start thinking about who's going to be in that first round, your top 12, top 15, uh, all of a sudden Trevor Story's making a case, not unlike the case we were hearing with Trey Turner not long ago. With him, it was more a uh, guy who steals bases will also get you some home runs. But here we have a case of a guy who's going to get you home runs and might also get you a pile of bags. Yeah, very definitely. I mean, here's certainly someone to look at, and uh, home runs, a pile of bags, and a batting average that's going to help rather than hurt. 
Yeah, and the last thing I'll say about that is that uh, his historical line drive rate has really climbed. He's uh, he's hitting 23% line drives. That's the same as he was doing a couple of years ago, way up from last year. And as a result, his batting average is back up in the near 300, which is where it was. He was 270, 275, something like that back in 2016 when everybody got rightfully really excited about Trevor Story. I think maybe, uh, Nick, the best is yet to come. I think it may be. And, you know, look at the overall at this guy. You're talking about line drive rate. Only a 33% uh, ground ball rate at this point, uh, 43% fly ball rate. Uh, that that uh, that bodes well for the power that he's already showing. Interestingly, though, fly ball rate is is down from the last couple of years. It was close to 50%, now down around 45 uh, But he's, uh, he's whacking home runs. There's no two ways about that. And I think that uh, a nice batted ball profile could... Uh, it could help his batting average if he wasn't really fly ball dependent as he appears not to be. Uh, we've been talking earlier this year about Chris Bryant's injury troubles. The Cubs finally activated Bryant from the disabled list on Saturday. Uh, this is going to cause some moving around in uh, the Chicago uh, playing time situation. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, with Chris Bryant back in the lineup, the, you figure that he's going to be in there every day, and that's going to cause a lot of shifting around in the uh, in the Cubs lineup. We're giving Chris Bryant a 35% gain in playing time which means that some guys are going to lose time. Uh, David Boat, who's become really a thing over the last few weeks, probably lose about 10% playing time. Addison Russell, about 5%. Biggest playing time loss is likely to be Jason Hayward, who may see a drop in playing time of about 15%. Hayward had been playing very well, and, and having him in the lineup consistently has been useful for fantasy players. That's going to drop a little bit. Uh, ben Zobris likely to lose a little playing time as well. So Chris Bryant's return is a good thing for his owners, uh, maybe not such a good thing for those who own other players, uh, who've been gaining playing time with Brian out the last couple of weeks. Tom Kephart, analyzing the story for BaseballHQ.com's playing time today, said that we might see Bryant out there in right field as well because Jason Hayward's on the DL and they want to try to give David Boat, you mentioned, uh, as much playing time as they can figure out. But uh, it's an embarrassment of riches kind of in Chicago. And I wonder what's going to go on with Jason Hayward when he gets back because uh, as good as he is defensively, he hasn't uh, been too good with the bat. No, that's true. So it'd be interesting to see what they do uh, and, and just where they are in terms of the uh, the overall race and looking into the postseason as we get to, get toward the end once Hayward returns. So some more shuffling likely to come. In Washington, a lost season, a very disappointing season for the Nationals, and uh, they've really started uh, opening the floodgates for their minor leaguers to come up as uh, September call-ups. They had a bunch of guys recalled just the other day and a couple of guys activated, but the big name here, I think, uh, outfielder Victor Robles. Yeah, Victor Robles. You know, we've kind of forgotten about Victor Robles over the course of the season because uh, he's been out with it, was out with an early injury, and uh, this was a guy that was better than Juan Soto in, in, in prospect lists as the season started. So, uh, a lot could happen with Victor Robles over the last couple of weeks. Certainly someone to keep your eye on in a keeper league, likely to be very, very good over the next few seasons, but could actually produce something over the uh, the tail end of the season as well. Talking about an embarrassment of riches, uh, the uh, outfield in Washington shapes up with Robles and Soto in the not-too-distant future. Boy, oh boy, that's going to be some lineup. The problem with, with uh, Victor Robles, Nick, 
as I remember it, was he had a kind of a bad attitude. We saw him in the Arizona Fall League last year at First Pitch Arizona, and he was the kind of guy who would jog out a, uh, a fly ball, who would not run out ground balls, and he uh, once could have reached on an error, but he was lollygagging towards first and gave the second baseman time to pick the ball up and throw him out, and he was immediately pulled from the game. Do we have any knowledge or any uh, intelligence about whether Victor Robles is uh, straightening out his attitude? Yeah, I haven't seen anything recently on that, but I, you know, certainly that's that's a, a concern at this point. I mean, we're dealing with a guy who's, who's 21 years old, so uh, you know he may be a young 21 years old at this point in terms of his attitude. And hopefully, the uh, the coaching staff will be able to help him mature a bit uh, and understand that he's got to play hard in the game, even with the kind of physical talent that he has. Looks like he will get some playing time. Another guy they called up, Eric Fetty. He was their top pitching prospect at the start of the season. He ran into some injury troubles. Uh, how much uh, are we going to see of Eric Fetty down the stretch? Well, you know, we could see a bit of Eric Fetty down the stretch. His, his first start uh, didn't go quite as well as they as we might have uh, hoped. The uh, That first start uh, this past week, uh, five innings pitch, seven strikeouts. That's good. Two walks. That's good. Uh, not so much in terms of the... Uh, uh, the earned runs allowed four earned runs in that five inning pitch, uh, including a home run, and that uh, that's what really hurt him. But uh, Eric Fetty's a guy that could get, could get some time in the rotation or the next, actually not even a month left now, now the next three weeks. I think he could too, and uh, I wouldn't mind taking a chance on a guy like this because I think we're, we're on the same page on this. The Nationals are not as bad as they've looked this year. They're actually a pretty good team. They, they certainly can hit well. They've got a, a lot of assets. And it looks like a guy like Eric Fetty, if he can get in there and stay in six innings a start, something like that, presuming that his health is okay, he could pick up some wins. He could maybe uh, do well ERA and whip-wise down the stretch. You mentioned uh, his first start. That sounds a little unlucky to me to give up uh, that many earned runs with that few base runners, and usually that'll straighten itself out, although maybe we'll have to see if it's a problem pitching from the stretch. But I would gamble on Eric Fetty. Yeah, I think it's a, he's a good gamble at this point. He throws he throws hard. Velocity's up around ninety four. Uh, nice ni- command ratio. Last year was real shaky at one point nine, up to two point four this year. So seeing some improvement in command, his his walks are down. So yeah, a guy worth perhaps taking a chance on over the the end of the season. Some really interesting news out of San Diego, which is a phrase you don't often hear, I suppose, but they've called up their catching prospect, Francisco Mejia, whom they picked up off of uh, Cleveland in the Brad Hand uh, and uh, Adam Simber trade a month or so ago, uh, right at the deadline. And uh, with Mejia coming, that's going to shake up the catching situation in San Diego. It is going to shake up the catching situation in San Diego and make it shake up some other situations as well. Uh, they, San Diego has a very fine catcher in Austin Hedges. He's a good defensive catcher. He's been hitting the ball well. Uh, certainly with Mejia coming up, Hedges is going to lose some playing time. Probably Hedges is a bit more of a, a better defensive catcher than Mejia is, so the Padres may find a way to get uh, to get Mejia into the lineup in other ways. Uh, maybe some outfield. Uh, they may find various ways of getting both Hedges and Mejia into the lineup at the same time, and I wouldn't be surprised if they do some experimenting with that over the next few weeks to see as they look toward next season, how can we get both of these guys who've got good bats into our lineup on a daily basis? And boy, if I was following this story, uh, Nick, most leagues have a 20-game rule, and if not, then it's usually the the rule says the most 
games played at any particular position in the previous year in the big leagues, um, there's a chance that Mejia could could play somewhere other than catcher just often enough to lose his catcher eligibility in a lot of leagues in those formats next year, which would really put a crimp on his value as a catcher. I think he's a top value type guy, but they uh, experimented with him at first pitch Arizona, the Arizona Fall League last year. We saw him at third didn't distinguish himself out there and and you mentioned that they might be looking at him as a left fielder as well certainly uh, he'll his bat will play no matter where he plays but his value takes a real hit if he's not catching it does indeed i mean given the given the lack of of uh, catchers throughout the major leagues who can hit uh his value takes a huge hit because he becomes more of a uh, an average type ball player instead of a superior ball player if he's at some other position in Philadelphia, there's another uh, prospect who, this one has been a bit more of a disappointment, I think, uh, than Francisco Mejia as a minor leaguer, and that's J.P. Crawford, who just doesn't seem to be getting anything done despite his uh, lofty status as a top prospect. Uh, he's been recalled by Philadelphia because I think they have a bit of an injury problem with M- Michael Franco. What's the story going on with J.P. Crawford in Philadelphia? Yeah, J.P. Crawford is back. I mean, J.P. Crawford is a guy that we expected to do do very well. It's, it's one of these guys who beginning to get kind of a post-hype uh, sort of situation with J.P. Crawford. Still a young ball player, uh, only only, uh, only 23 years old. At this point, has had a very disappointing season. 194 batting average, two home runs, eight RBIs, two stolen bases. A, uh, a guy who doesn't help your roster much and probably not to, ex- not to expect much between now and the end of the season from him either. Uh, but a guy to keep keep on your radar. I mean, we all thought J.P. Crawford was going to be an excellent ball player when he first came up. Uh, now, I m- imagine most of your league mates are thinking not so much. Uh, we all know what happens with post-type prospects. So certainly a guy to keep on your radar as we head into next season and beyond. Matt Dodge covered this story for Playing Time Today at BaseballHQ.com, and he noted that uh, that uh, J.P. Crawford was sent down because of some uh, struggles that he was having, and then he, he had a broken hand, which didn't help matters any when he was in the minors, he only went 13 for 54. Uh, that's only about a 255 or so average and one, uh, one each of a double, triple and home run. So he wasn't really banging the ball yet again in the minor leagues. Uh, this is going to be uh, something of a spotlight on J.P. Crawford. And I wonder if the clock is ticking as far as his prospect status goes. Uh, maybe, maybe so. But you remember, the guy still is very, very young. And the broken hand is certainly going to give him a pass on a lot of things. I mean, it takes a while sometimes to, to regain strength and to regain all of your timing once you've had that sort of thing happen to you. So uh, I would kind of give him a pass on those those stats from recent, those recent minor league stats as he comes back from that broken hand. And finally, Nick, uh, we have a columnist at BaseballHQ.com, a well-known name in fantasy baseball, Fred Zinke, a good Canadian guy, I should point out. Uh, and he has a, a column called uh, the From A to Zinke, but I, he also covers some... Uh, vacations for baseball hq in the other columns and in playing time tomorrow covering the national league east he uh, kind of asked a rhetorical question who hit better for the phillies in their outfield in august roman quinn or odabel herrera why was fred zinke interested in this well you know, in fact in fact fred uh, fred said if you want to win a bet in a philadelphia bar go ask the person sitting next to you who actually appeared in more games in august uh, Roman Quinn or Odebel herrera and obviously the answer if, if zinke wouldn't be writing about it is roman quinn uh Roman Quinn, 25 games in August, 21 for Odebel Herrera. And Quinn actually out-hit, out-hit uh, Herrera in August. Take a look at Roman Quinn. Don't pass on this guy. Here's a guy that's uh, in, in, 
80 major league at bats, his first 80 at bats, has seven stolen bases. 338 batting average, seven stolen bases. Pretty good. And, and a guy who's going to get some fairly consistent playing time down the stretch. So I would take a long look at Roman Quinn at this point, especially if you need swipes. I didn't notice, but uh, now that Fred's brought it to my attention, uh, 970 OPS in August compared to a 576 OPS in August for Herrera, 400 points of, uh, of OPS is going to make people sit up and take notice, especially in the Phillies management structure. It is. You're right. The Phillies management structure is going to take a lot more notice than fantasy players at this point because a lot of people are focusing their, shifting their attention to football and may not notice what, what Roman Quinn has done this month. So uh, a good guy to take a look at. I think a good guy to pick up on a – if you, you might get him at a reasonable fab at this point. And if you're in a stolen base race, he's someone you would certainly want in your roster. I am in a stolen base race, and unfortunately I'm in the wrong league to take advantage of Roman Quinn, but that sounds like terrific advice from Fred Zinke and from you, Nick. Thanks very much for helping us out, and we'll talk to you again in a week. All right, thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and is our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League, BaseballHQ.com, Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Hey, Jock. Hey, PD. How you doing? Doing all right. Uh, how about yourself? Doing good, doing good. Well, the big news this week, I think, uh, well, there's two real big items. We'll start in Cleveland. They acquired former MVP third baseman Josh Donaldson from Toronto, and it looks like he could be activated into the big league roster any day now. I saw an internet meme that pointed out Cleveland had traded for a third baseman when they already had the best third baseman in the league, meaning Jose Ramirez, and probably the best in Major League Baseball this year. Cleveland's going to have to shuffle players around once Donaldson is activated. How risky is this, Jock, with three weeks to go and Cleveland preparing for a playoff run. Yeah, you know, I personally don't think the position move is going to phase uh, Jose Ramirez at all. He played 71 games at second base in 2017, and obviously his his offense didn't suffer then. Uh, the biggest questions here, I think, are Donaldson's calf. Can he play the field? How rusty he might be? If he can play the third base, if he can play third base, the biggest displacement here looks like uh, Jason Kipnis, who even with his ever so slight second half turnaround has been a been a pretty subpar offensive player all season. Uh, Greg Allen's going to lose some time in center field if Kipnis plays out there. No big loss for Cleveland in that regard. Uh, Yandy Diaz will lose some time. I like Yandy Diaz's upside. If he ever elevates the ball, that's a different subject. Um, if um, if Donaldson has to DH, uh, maybe Yonder Alonso loses some at-bats at first base as Ed, Edwin Encarnacion shuffles over there. Uh, but I'll tell you what, if Donaldson's healthy enough to hit, I want him in there over most of those names. Sure, it's a risk, but uh, I think it's a good move by the Tribe. It seems that way to me, too. It, just that the upside of Josh Donaldson it easily gets uh, gets more for Cleveland than playing any of those guys you mentioned. Uh, there's the the Greg Allen's case, I think, is interesting from a fantasy point of view because he did uh, flash some speed in the time that he was available to uh, to get some at-bats and plate appearances. And uh, so from that point of view, if you're in a tight race in stolen bases, it might be disappointing that Greg Allen goes. But uh, how should fantasy owners, assuming Donaldson's still in your free agent pool, and in a lot of leagues he is until he's called up, right? When he gets back, how do you think fantasy owners need to uh, deal with this? Well, he's obviously a risk, and we just don't know that much about him. He hasn't had that many minor league at-bats. Of course, in his in his first game back, he hit a grand slam home run in the minors, and uh I mean, when you look when you look at that, uh, I mean, you 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 got to believe, like we've said, that uh, 
Kipnis could lose some time. Uh, Greg Allen uh, can lose some time. Um, obviously, this, like you said, the stolen bases are are going to hurt Greg Allen's owners. Uh, uh, you either, if if you're a uh, if you're a week to week in a week to week fantasy league in terms of setting your lineups, you 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 got to you got to take the risk. You got to figure out whether you need the home runs badly enough to take the plunge on Donaldson. And that's one thing he can do. We know that he can hit home runs. He had 40-plus in 2015, his MVP year. Then he was high 30s, low 30s the last couple of years. And this year is a kind of a blank slate, really. We don't know quite what to expect. But Josh Donaldson, if he's if he's anywhere near as good as he has been even the last couple of years post-MVP, you're still looking at a borderline $30 player even in the short run. That's not too bad to have on your roster. No, that's right. Uh, I'm a, I'm a Josh Donaldson fan. He had a terrific second half when he came back from his injury last year. He looked like he was good to go, and this year's been a big disappointment. But uh, I think he can still hit. More big news in New York, where we're now hearing that Yankees closer Aroldis Chapman might actually be finished for the year. He's got some left knee tendonitis, and it's just not improving. If Aroldis Chapman is finished. I've been watching this Yankees bullpen, and it seems like there's some, should be some concern there. Who gets the saves for the Yankees in the stretch run and playoffs? Yeah, you know, I, I'm not so certain it's 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 a matter of it, that the questions are, are whether the Yankee the Yankee subs for Chapman can close the door. I mean, you've got David Robertson and Della Batanzas, both of whom have pitched very well recently. They have five of the past six saves, and 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 I think that's going to continue as long as Chapman's out. I think the biggest question for the Yankees, both down the stretch and in the postseason, is is losing that extra leg of bullpen depth, particularly with that shaky and tiring uh, rotation. Uh, that That's an interesting thing to watch. So for now, are you saying that you think it's going to definitely be Batances and, and uh, David Robertson and not Zach Britton? Yeah, they've got most of the saves. I mean, obviously, um, depending on the situation, somebody else could sneak in there. I even think Tommy Keneal, who was recently recalled after a, a pretty poor season, uh, he got, a, I think, a, a, a long save uh, um, in a blowout game uh, the other day. Um, I, Britain could get saves, but I think Robertson and, and Batances, the two righties, are the, are the, uh, are, are the, are the big names there. Um, Britain, obviously, from the left-hand side, if they feel the need to bring him in in a situa- situational um, event, uh, he, he could pick up some saves, too. Obviously, anything can happen over these final three-plus weeks. Yeah, I was just looking at uh, Zach Britton's got a 394 ERA and a 356 expected ERA, which is quite a bit higher than either of those other two relief pitchers. Is that going to be a concern for somebody who's thinking Zach Britton might pick up some uh, extra action out there, or is he going to pretty much just have to depend on his left-handedness and come into an inning where two out of the three batters are left-handed, that kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, I think the numbers kind of speak for themselves, and what's been going on lately is, is uh, uh, speaks for itself. I mean, Delmatance has had a horrible start to the season, but he's been lights out recently, and David David Robertson's pretty reliable. Uh, Zach Britton hasn't been particularly reliable either health or performance-wise this year. So other than his left-handedness, uh, I mean, I, I if, if you need saves, yeah, sure, pick him up. But I sure wouldn't count on him getting uh, even most of the saves going forward for the Yankees. 
Jock, it seems sometimes we could rename this uh, segment of Baseball HQ Radio the Shohei Otani segment because it seems like we've been talking about him every week. Uh, we talked about him last week, in fact, and since that time there has been a change in the story. Apparently he has new damage to that wonky elbow ligament in his right elbow, and doctors are now positively recommending Tommy John surgery. And, if, of course, if he has that, he'll be out all of next year. But in the meantime, complicating things, as we discussed last week, he's been batting pretty productively. He had a two-home run game right after he got the news earlier this week. Uh, Again, I have to ask you, what do you think is going to happen with Joey Otani? Well, the pitching diagnosis wasn't a shock to me or anyone else who's who's been paying just a little attention. He entered the season uh, taking plasma-rich platelet injections for a grade one strain. Now, this grade two strain supposedly is in a different part of the ligament, but this thing is clearly breaking down, and he needs to get it fixed if he's going to pitch again in 2020. 2019 is out, uh, but like you said, the most interesting part of this now is what it's going to do to his offensive performance, and apparently it's not affecting it right now at all, at least uh, pre-operation. Even against the likes of Bartolo Colon, who's throwing softballs at age 45, uh, 683 ERA in the second half, I noted uh, when I watched him last night, uh, um, Otani's offensive performance performance has been very impressive, and and there's a lot more going on here, too. Um, He's he's really starting to come around against uh, lefties. Uh, His platoon splits have been pronounced as anyone's. His his work against right-handed pitching, I think he has a, a 1.079 OPS versus righties and, and still under 600 100 against lefties. But he had his first home run against a lefty the other night. Uh, um, he's improving as an offensive player. Um, so I personally think they're going to let him play out September and then they'll go for the surgery. Uh, and, and like you and I have talked about before, the interesting thing is what happens post-operation? When can he come back as a hitter? And what is his future in 2019 as a hitter? Lots of stuff going on here. And just the fact that you uh, say that as a question seems to indicate to me that you haven't got an answer. And we talked about this last week, and neither of us could figure it out. I've been watching the news. I've been watching all the coverage. And I've been waiting for somebody to go ask some doctor somewhere if and when Otani has this elbow surgery, the Tommy John surgery, does that mean he can't hit? I, I wouldn't expect him to play the field because that involves throwing. Even a first baseman has to make the odd throw. And, uh, and uh, outfielders, of course, have to throw all the time. But could he be a full-time DH, even though that complicates the uh, roster for the Angels, given uh, Albert Pujols' limitations? I just don't know if physically it's possible or indicated that you can or can't swing a bat after you've had Tommy John. Is it is it just a throwing injury? Is it an arm injury writ large? Nobody seems to know, or certainly nobody's saying. Yeah, and, and this is the thing that I think you and I and everybody else, certainly Otani owners, are going to be looking for in the next couple of weeks is some indication as to this. And and that issue, it's interesting, you you talked about him not playing first base. I would tend to agree with you on first blush. The, pro- the problem the Angels have is they've got Albert Pujols over at first base, and his knees won't let him play there. He's already out for the year. He, he's barely holding on statistically. He's a barely tolerable offensive player now anyway. He's kind of a 20 home run, two. 250 hitting guy um if he's asked to play first base again while otani is the dh uh, um that <laughs> that's something the angels have to address next year as well it wouldn't be surpri- it wouldn't surprise me at all if there's some sort of behind the scenes uh push to see if Pujols might restructure his contract or even retire because uh um he 
he can't stay on the field if Otani's going to DH. And, and boy, if, if there's any way possible, the Angels are going to want Otani in that lineup next year. In Boston, Raphael Devers is finally back from the DL. He'd been on there for quite a while with a hamstring injury. Uh, Matt Dodge covered this for playing time today at Baseball HQ. Uh, Devers is going to play, but perhaps not as much as his owners might have hoped, in part because of the arrival of new-slash-old second baseman Brandon Phillips. What's going on in Boston at the Keystone? Well, I think part of the tell with Devers, too, is his hamstring's been an issue for most of the second half. It's cut into his playing time. Uh, He's only hit 242 with three home runs and 90 at-bats, and he's been pretty awful against left-handers this year. Uh, 221 batting average, three home runs, and 154 at-bats to date. And Boston, like you said, has all this positional versatility. Uh, they have Brandon Phillips, who they just called up. He hit a home run and walked a couple of times in his uh, his first game. He he was giving Ian Kinsler a breather over at second, but he can play third base as well. Uh, Eduardo P- Nunez has hit a bunch of home runs over the past week. Um, so Devers has competition. Uh, I He's going to get his time. I think he's a left-handed hitter. He's going to get his time against righties. Um, but uh, I... If I were a Devers owner, I wouldn't be counting on him too heavily down the stretch. I think if I was a Brock Holt owner, too, I'd be a little worried. Uh, not that Brock Holt's going to be the linchpin of anybody's offense, but it, he seems definitely to be the odd man out here. Yeah, Brock Holt's a two fifty eight hitter without a lot of power, a, a three fifty eight slugging percentage for the year, 703 OPS. Those numbers aren't going to cut it. He's got versatility, and that helps. But as an offensive threat, he's... Uh, pretty much uh, down to the nubs. Any 15-team mixed value for Brandon Phillips? I really like Brandon Phillips. I mean, it really depends on how Boston's going to use him or play him. Uh, I'm surprised he, he didn't get a major league job before this. Uh, he can still play some defense. Uh, um, it, I, yeah, I'm, I'm not in that Red Sox dugout, but I'll tell you what, I'd be playing him. I'd take a flyer on him if, if – uh, if, if I had a need at uh, second base or third base, I think he qualifies in both places in, uh, in 25 leagues. And I should note that Baseball HQ's uh, Boston and team analysts are giving Brandon Phillips only 10% of the remaining plate appearances for the year. So uh, temper your expectations accordingly. He could be just mostly pinch hitting, doing the odd uh, you know one start a week type of thing. Wouldn't be that helpful, so keep that in mind. Uh, uh, some news in Kansas City. You know, uh, before we started this uh part of the of the program jock we were talking on the phone and we both seem to think that we don't talk about teams like kansas city often enough so let's talk about kansas city starting with danny duffy the left-handed starter a lot of uh expectations this year he i read him on a lot of sleeper lists that kind of thing he left a game earlier this week with shoulder tightness and then he was talking to the local reporters and said he expected to be shut down which is kind of weird you usually expect to hear that from the team itself Either way, it's a disappointing end to a disappointing season, Jock. What happens in the Kansas City rotation with Danny Duffy on the shelf, especially if we assume it's for the rest of the year? Well, it looks like as a direct result of uh, Duffy shelving, uh, Kansas City and Baseball HQ, for that matter, have, have, have upped the innings pitch projections for Eric Scogland and Glenn Sparkman. And this this brings us back to maybe one reason why we haven't or don't talk about Kansas City that, that much recently. Uh, there's just nothing to see, at least in this regard here, replacing Duffy. Um, um, Sparkman throws reasonably hard. He's generated some swing and miss out of the pen, but now he's going to he's gonna start some games, throw three, four innings uh, in his new role. He's, he's basically unproven. 
Uh, Scoglin has never brought his control to the majors. Um, these are guys on a bad team. I don't think you want to pick up down the stretch. Um, right now, Kansas City just doesn't have any uh, major league ready starting pitching that's real interesting that, uh, that fantasy owners can take a flyer on right now. Yeah, I was looking at both of these guys. I'm in an American League only format, and you're always on the lookout for a guy who might pick you up a cheap win or something like that. But Scogland, in addition to all of his other troubles, sprained his UCL and went to the d- d- disabled list earlier this season as well. So there's that ticking time bomb in the background. But basically, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. It's that sometimes, especially the poorer teams in the league, just have to start really bad pitchers because they have no other options. You know who else comes to mind in that regard is Toronto. And there's a couple of guys starting games for the Blue Jays who just seem to be borderline major leaguers at best, but they have to start them. But that doesn't mean that we as fantasy players have to start them. Yeah, it's interesting. It's one thing to keep an eye on these guys because they're going to get opportunity right now. And and who knows, maybe with opportunity, someone's going to blossom. But uh, to run out and get them right now until they've at least shown shown that they can can get major league hitters out for a little while, uh, it's probably a mistake. Unless you're in some kind of league where the where the uh, free agent rules say you can just grab anybody you want and put them on a kind of unlimited reserve list, then by all means have at it and and uh, have them on your reserve while you watch to see if they're any good. But if it's costing you a real roster spot, it's not something I think we either of us can recommend. Uh, Kansas City also got some bad news uh, on the offensive side. They're going to lose one of their few bright lights, uh, Jorge Soler, the outfielder slash DH. He's got a continuing problem with that broken toe that he had before. It's healed, but he's got a bone bruise in the same spot. Let's assume Jorge Soler's finished. Uh, who gets his playing time? Yeah, I'm a Jorge Soler owner here, long timer in a keeper league. I'm I'm still waiting. He he really did uh, uh, show a lot of his promise this year. Um, his power was was not quite what I thought it might be. I I still think he has a future. What is he still 25, 26? Uh, uh, but but. But again, his replacements go back to what we're saying about why we don't talk about Kansas City. The, the guys that are taking his playing time, Rizal Herrera, uh, Brett Phillips, Jorge Bonifacio, um, they've all gotten PT playing time bumps, but they've been pretty awful in August and September. Uh, if you're going to take a chance, maybe Brian Goodwin, he showed a little more than any of these guys uh, last year when he was with Washington, but he just returned from the the DL with a strained groin, so no guarantee there. This, to me, looks like bench outfield additions for 2019. Um, I'll tell you what, if you're, if you're looking to catch a hot streak on somebody on Kansas City who, who might benefit from this playing time shift, uh, although I think he already is benefiting, and I'm pretty sure he's not available in most leagues, Ryan O'Hearn over at first base has been the most interesting guy in that club. He has nine home runs now, over 87 at-bats, uh, 264 batting average. Uh, Lightning in a bottle right there. Uh, don't know how well it'll fare over the long term, but right now, Ryan O'Hearn is bringing it. Yeah, when I looked at the playing time today piece by uh, Matt Dodge at Baseball HQ, I noticed uh, at the end we list the playing time changes, and you've got Jorge Soler minus 30. Then you've got uh, Goodwin, Brian Goodwin, plus 10, and, and four guys at plus 5% each. You mentioned Herrera, Bonifacio, Phillips, and Ryan O'Hearn. And Ryan O'Hearn is the interesting character here, I think. Uh, I would like to be a little more interested than I am in Brian Goodwin, but that groin pull seems to be something that works against his one big asset, which is that he can run. Uh, I don't know, maybe just 
take a look at Ryan O'Hearn, but otherwise forget about it. Uh, <laughs> and finally, some decent news for Kansas City, Jock. The continuing excellent play of Whit Merrifield uh, came out of nowhere last year, and he was covered recently in Baseball HQ's Facts and Flukes Performance Validation Analysis. This is a uh, piece that runs every week where our analysts look at players and look at how they're playing and see whether it matches up with their skills. Brant Chesser reported that Merrifield might be losing a little bit of speed, but he's uh, still a top player and a $20-plus target for 2019 drafts. Yeah, you know, he, he may be losing a little speed if you're looking at the speed metrics, but you can't prove that with the stolen base totals and the, and the, and the success rate. He's, it's another 30 stolen base season. His, his success rate is still hovering around 75 80%. He's getting caught a little more late in the season, um, but that, that's to, to be expected, particularly on a team that's trying to score like Kansas City. They're going to send out their, their you know, they're, they're, they're going to try their best in every facet of the game. I and mean, you're right. What can you say about Merrifield? He's just been a, he's been a pleasant surprise in Kansas City. He's been uh, one of their best uh, position players, if not their best position player for the past two years. Uh, He's he's really uh, he's he's really tearing it up in the second half. That 332 batting average has been fueled by a 38% hit rate. That helps, but even if that goes down a little bit, he's he's a solid 280 290 uh, uh, hitter. Good production, good good wheels. Um, I like Whit Merrifield going forward. Yeah, the hit rate is a little higher, seems that way, but he's had a 36% hit rate in the past. It's 36 as of just the other day here at Baseball HQ's metrics listings. His hard contact index about 15% higher than league average. That's pretty good for a guy who's not thought of as a home run threat. If you figure that he's going to finish the year 1530 and he could easily repeat that next year, I think that $20 plus is a reasonable expectation for 2019. Yeah, I would agree, and I and and I agree with you too a little bit about the hit rate. I think his hit rate, as long as he maintains his wheels, is always going to be over thirty percent someplace. Uh, you like to see those guys who make hard contact and uh, have good wheels because they're chances are they're going to have a pretty good batting average. I think that's true, and that's something that Brant Chester pointed out, is that his expected batting average, which is a standardized formula based on line drive percentage and and other factors, and that indicates that he's not a 300 hitter, but in fact, he's got a, a pretty good career line drive percentage, a few ticks above normal. He's above average in power, as I said, or in, in hard contact at least, and a uh, pretty solid 34% career hit rate coupled with some decent speed, which means he's going to get, what, maybe a leg hit every week and a half or two weeks. All of that kind of adds up to create a 300 hitter where you think you're looking at a 270 type guy. Yeah, now all the Royals need to do is build about six or seven players around him. <laughs> Easier said than done, uh, unless they start spending some of that Walmart money. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Until then, it's the blue light special. I think that's Kmart, not Walmart, but uh, you know what I mean. Jock, thanks a million for helping us out. Catch you in a week. Okay, PD, see ya. Jock Thompson is Baseball HQ Director of News and Analysis and our man on the American League beat for Baseball HQ Radio. When we return our Baseball HQ commentaries, we have the frequent flyer and pitcher matchups coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about some of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In The Speculator, columnist Ryan Bloomfield has his playing time today for September 5th. 2019. In playing time tomorrow, American League Central analyst Brandon Cruz also looks ahead to 2019, focusing on hitters like Byron Buxton of Minnesota, outfield opportunities in Cleveland and Kansas City, and the potential slugging DH Kristen Stewart in Detroit. 
And in the Daily Call-Ups report, our HQ scouting staff looks at recent call-ups, including Toronto right-handed pitcher David Paulino, Washington outfielder Victor Robles, Baltimore right-hander Luis Ortiz, and other call-ups. And those are just three articles among dozens, a small sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, player news updates in playing time today, and roster forecasts in playing time tomorrow. There's buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers. There's fantasy market analysis, injury news and analysis, and tools like the player projections, a daily dashboard, and leading indicators. This is the kind of content and tools you can use down the stretch and all season long to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have our pitcher matchups report. And leading off, it's the Frequent Flyer, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyer is Houston right-handed starter Josh James. And here to tell you more is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. Perhaps now, Houston Astros starting pitcher Josh James is a true sleeper in every sense of the word, but probably not for the reasons you are currently thinking of. We'll explain. Reportedly suffering from sleep apnea, Josh James began using a CPAP prior to the 2017 season. The difference? Well, maybe his Astros teammates improved without a snoring. Just kidding. But seriously, whether related to his improved metal focus from sleeping, or possibly his improved mechanics, or maybe even some combination of both, Josh James has increased his velocity, and in the process, he has increased his strikeout totals by almost 100. That's right, almost 100, going from 72 strikeouts total in 21 AA starts in 2017 to 171 strikeouts in 23 AA and AAA starts combined in 2018. Wow! Over 100 strikeouts, if you count his incredible 9Ks as September 1st Major League debut, is a huge, huge difference. But his strikeout numbers aren't the only thing going over 100. According to the Houston Chronicles, Chandler Rome, in an article published on September 1st, Josh James's third major league pitch clocked in at 101.1 miles per hour. Chandler Rome goes on to report that no Astros pitcher has thrown a ball that hard all season. And only one starter in the league, Shohei Otani, has eclipsed the 101 mile per hour mark with his fastball this season. However, despite this significant uptick in velocity, barring injury, Josh James is likely to spend September gaining experience in the Astros' bullpen rather than in the starting rotation. That's why Josh James, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, remember what Todd Zola and Patrick Davitt have been saying about moving the decimals in September? Dropping a high ERA or high whip starter for maybe a pitcher like uh, Josh James? 
Plus, the strikeout totals are staggering, according to the September 1st edition of call-ups on BaseballHQ.com, which pointed to Josh James's dominance rate of 13.5 strikeouts per nine through two levels of the minors in 2018. In fact, Josh James's 13.5 strikeouts per nine leads the minors in 2018, according to MLB.com. So, if this year's gains are for real, as suggested by our analysts in the same edition of call-ups on BaseballHQ.com, then it's entirely possible that Josh James is a proverbial late bloomer. In other words, don't sleep on Josh James, our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has our frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for pitcher matchups. Our matchups are rated on a scale centered on zero. Strong starts are those rated plus 1.0 or higher. Weak starts are those rated minus 0.51 or worse. And starts in between are judgment calls you'll have to make based on your own league standing and context. Here with a scan of a battle of National League East stars, Philadelphia right-hander Aaron Nola in New York to face right-hander Noah Syndergaard of the Mets and some other weekend matchups, here's Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. We're back this weekend with two possible marquee matchups in which both starting pitchers have matchup ratings in the strong start range, including two of the three frontrunners for the National League Cy Young Award. One of those frontrunners owns this weekend's maximum matchup rating with the only one in the threes at 313. But Jacob deGrom is in a mismatch at City Field versus Vincent Velasquez, who has a matchup rating of minus 090. That's a lopsided matchup rating differential of 403. Max Scherzer has the second best matchup rating at 266, and like DeGrom, Scherzer is another National League Cy Young Award favorite pitching at home who is not part of our marquee matchup. Scherzer goes against the Cubs' Cole Hamels, who has a matchup rating of 064. The marquee matchup features two 25-year-old right-handers. One is our third National League Cy Young Award candidate, Phil's ace Aaron Nola, and the other is half of the Mets' stellar one-two punch this weekend in the Big Apple, Noah Syndergaard. Syndergaard sports the third-best matchup rating of the weekend at 208, and Nola owns the seventh-best matchup rating of the weekend at 122. When we compare the two teams involved in our marquee matchup, we often see one team emerge as the clear favorite. I expected that to be the case for Philadelphia. Many of this weekend's comparisons do follow that pattern, but not as many as I expected. As of this recording, Nola's Phillies are eight games over 500, in second place three games behind the division-leading Braves, and three and a half games out of the second wildcard slot. Syndergaard's Mets are 14 games under 500, 14 games behind the division-leading Braves, and 14 and a half games out of the second wildcard slot. Versus right-handers, Philadelphia is 7 games over 500, and New York is 7 games under 500. Against teams under 500, the Phillies are 9 games over 500, while against teams over 500, the Metropolitans are 17 games under 500. But listen to this. Despite all of that going for the Phils, head-to-head, the Mets lead the season series 8-5 and are 4-2 and at home in City Field when facing Philadelphia. The New Yorkers have split their past 10 games, won 11 of their past 20, and won 17 of their past 30. The Fightin' Phils have lost 6 of their past 10 games, lost 12 of their past 20, and lost 17 of their past 30. On the road, Philadelphia is nine games under 500 and has lost 13 of its past 20 road games. 
At home, New York is 12 games under 500, but has split its past 20 home games. So of those seven factors, only four favor Philadelphia, making this marquee matchup closer than expected on the surface. In fact, Syndergaard has the matchup differential of 086 on his side, and he deserves it. He may not be a candidate for the National League Cy Young Award, but Noah Syndergaard should get strong consideration for the National League Comeback Player of the Year Award. After recovering from a partially torn latissimus dorsum muscle below his pitching shoulder last season and logging only 30 innings, Syndergaard has thrown 122 frames this year. His stats and indicators all align closely just below the dominant ones he put up in 334 major league innings pitched prior to that lat injury. Syndergaard is fresh off a complete game perfect PQS 5 in San Francisco, which followed a PQS dominant 4 against those same giants at home in New York. He's thrown more than 100 pitches in five consecutive outings, and three of his past four home starts have been PQS dominant. Aaron Nola's past 15 games started have resulted in nine PQS dominance, four PQS decents, and three PQS disasters. That's a ratio of 60% dominant to 20% disaster. On the road, Nola's past 10 games started have yielded five PQS doms, four PQS decents, and one PQS disaster for a ratio of 50% dominant to 10% disaster. His past two outings against the Mets have both been PQS fives, with one at home and one on the road. And Nola is putting up career-best marks for nearly every measure of skill and performance this season. We sometimes say it's better to be lucky than good, but Nola has been both lucky and good. He has a fortunate hit rate of 27% and strand rate of 80% to go along with his fine first pitch strike rate of 71% and swinging strike rate of 13%. Look for very strong results from both Aaron Nola and Noah Syndergaard this weekend. Our minimum matchup ratings show 15 starting pitchers in the strong sit range, including 5 with matchup ratings below minus 1. Highlighting the matchups that give guys two swings at starters with strong sit matchup ratings, take Tampa hitters at home facing Baltimore's David Hess and Jeffrey Ramirez, Oakland hitters in Texas to tee off against Johander Mendez and Austin Bibbins Dirks, and those world-renowned Yankee hitters in Seattle rebelling against King Felix Hernandez and Erasmo Ramirez. Check our site to get updated matchup information every day. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick does our weekend pitcher matchups during the season. When we return, our weekly talk with Todd Zola and Master Notes both coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. Now, I don't know if you've heard the news, but the Arizona Fall League rosters have been announced, and if you weren't sure about heading out to first pitch Arizona this November, well, this should tip you into the hell yeah, I'm going camp. This might be the richest crop of top prospects in AFL ever, according to the prospect watchers. And I was there the year they had Mike Trout and Bryce Harper. So here are just some of the top prospects who will be in Phoenix while we are. Toronto third baseman Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the consensus number one prospect in all of baseball, as well as Toronto's second base prospect Bo Bichette. You might be able to see Houston right-hander Forrest Whitley or Philadelphia right-hander Sixto Sanchez. Washington third baseman Carter Keboom will be there. So will Cincinnati center fielder Taylor Trammell, Milwaukee second baseman Keston Hayura, Atlanta center fielder Christian Pash, New York Mets shortstop Andres Gimenez, 
Miami's center fielder Monty Harrison, Yankee center fielder Estevan Florial, Cleveland shortstop Yu Cheng Chang, the Mets first baseman Peter Alonzo, Arizona right-hander John Duplantier, and Detroit center fielder Daz Cameron. Those are just the top guys. There are literally hundreds more prospects, and some of them will be the breakout stars who will win you leagues for years to come. You gotta get in on the ground floor. Check it out today at BaseballHQ.com. Go to the home page, look on the right side of the page for the stylish Baseball HQ radio logo that reflects its host, and right below that, you'll see the bright orange and yellow logo for First Pitch Arizona. Click the link, sign up, and we'll see you in Phoenix. Take me out to the ball game. Take me out with the crowd. Buy me some peanuts and Cracker Jack. I don't care if I never get back. Let me root, root, root for the home team. If they don't win, it's a shame. For it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Yes, it's one, two, three strikes, you're out at the old ball game. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for Talk with Todd, and I'm happy to once again say to Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Good to be back with you, PD. I... I understand we're both going through some heat waves here. Oh boy, it's been super hot here and extremely humid, which is kind of a little unusual for the part of Ontario where I live. We're uh, quite a ways away from any big bodies of water. We have a a small river that runs through, but uh, yeah, it's very, very humid and unpleasant, which I understand is par for the course where you live. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's not a, it's not a dry heat, but uh, like you were talking a little off air, if. if uh, if the fact that I'm sweating a little more than normal is my biggest complaint, I can't complain too much. Well, I was curious. Uh, you told me that uh, you're going to be in a in a draft this week, and everybody will think, "Oh, football draft a little late." In actual fact, you're going into a baseball draft that's going to start for 2019 before we're done with 2018. Tell me about this draft. Yeah, it's an NFBC league. It's actually we actually you know in theory. We're supposed to start this the day the season ends. That's kind of the tradition. But someone's going to poke the commissioner and say, hey, can we get going? It's only the first round. We don't need to know the final day of games or whatever. So I'm sure we'll be drafting the final weekend of the season. That's what usually happens. And it's it's an actual, it's an NFB-sponsored league. It's more, I mean, we're, we're playing it out, and there's money on the line, and I'm actually in line for money this year. I'm hanging around second and third place in the league. So I actually drafted with Derek Van Riper, my uh, Rotowire colleague there. But um, yeah, it's, 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 I, we do, I do it for the social aspect and try to, you know, it's, it's fun. And, um, but yeah, we will be starting the last weekend of the season. It's a standard 15 team mixed NFBC league. We call it the, uh, the premature edraftulation league. Oh, barely safe for work with that title. Uh, now this <laughs> is, is this an experts draft? No, no, it's an NFBC league, and there are, uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, NFBC people would know the people in it because it's some of the, some of the more well-known, you know, people that that have been in the league, been in the contest for a long time. Uh, said I've been doing it for a few years, mainly for the social aspect of it. That's how, that's how sad my life is. Is I need, I need to do a, a draft to have any social interaction. But uh, I, I think most people know I do a podcast with Derek Van Riper on Rotowire a couple times a week, and it gives us something to talk about 
both in the season and and and, and out of the season when we do a, a podcast as well, uh, the prep for the league and some of our picks and the whatnot. So I like it because it's um it it's it's the it, to me it's like the purest draft. There's obviously there's no ADP. There's no there's no rankings. There's no I, you know no projections. It's a, it's a gut feel. You know maybe there's recency bias, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But to me, it's it just kind of I, I enjoy it just because of the trueness of the, of the you know you're basing it. This is who you want, and we'll go back and we'll look at our picks. And someone goes in the fourth round in this league, and maybe goes in the thirteenth round in the ADP overall, and all sorts of things like that. So again, it, to me, it's as, it's it's as much of a social interaction. But you know I, I'm you know it's 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 a real league, so we're playing it out. We talk fab every week, et cetera. So it's uh it's kind of fun. Well, it sounds like it'll be great and a really interesting exercise, as you say. Do you have your draft slot yet? No, no, we don't. We don't have our draft slot yet. Um, I guess that <laughs> at least I, I, me, I, I say that I should go to the NFPC board. Who knows the way these guys work? No, they're just starting to uh, get, gather the troops, as it were. Uh, so I, I, I will. We will probably know that in a couple of weeks. I mean, we're still. What three and a, three and a half weeks at this point out? So we will uh, within the I'm sure in about two two and a half weeks we'll have the draft slot and um, and we will probably uh, I don't know if it'll be if I don't know if we'll have it when we record so I can discuss our potential first round pick but we'll uh we, it, it's going to be uh we, we we I should have a little more information as the weeks go on. And in, in the, in the good thing about it, too, for those that, well, everybody has access. The first six or so rounds will be posted on the NFBC boards, and we uh, we like to take the criticism and the compliments and all that kind of stuff. So the first six or so rounds will be public knowledge. All right. Well, when I heard you were doing this, I quickly got together the uh, ADPs from last year's NFBC, and uh, I thought we could quickly run through them and uh, talk about which guys from last year's first round are in, out, or maybes for the 2019 season. And I know it's a long ways off and anything can happen, but just as a thought exercise, I thought it might be pretty interesting. We'll just go go through 1 through 15. I'll tell you what I think, whether they're in, out, or maybe, uh, or I don't know, and then I'll get your uh, comment uh, on, on what I have uh, written down here. So uh, number one last year, no surprise, was Mike Trout. Uh, obviously, he's going to be in the top 15 again in 2019. Would he still be your number one pick? He would be my number one pick. I think he will be the the majority number one pick. I don't think he's going to be the consensus. I do think other players will will sneak in. As a matter of fact, I think there'll probably more. There may be some more names at number one in the next in 2019 than we've seen in recent seasons. Number two in the ADPs was Mookie Betts. Uh, I think, of course, he's going to be in. How high will Mookie Betts fit into the picture in 2019? Uh, he's going to get some play at number one. Uh, I think that um, you know we still have a couple weeks left, and if he, especially if he has a good playoff, that recency bias, even even though it's not so recent when we're drafting in next next year, but still it's still in our in the forefront of our minds. I think he's going to get some play uh, as the number one pick. And to me, if you if you tell me which of the two is going to get more plate appearances, that's the guy I want is my number one pick. I don't think we know. Trout, as we know, had some issues this year. Uh, you, know, per, you know, per plate appearance, whatever you want to use as the, you know, the baseline unit, he's still one of the, you know, still the best. Uh, Mookie has had a couple of minor injuries, but he's, he's, he's uh, you know, he's uh, early in the season anyway, missed some time, so he's trailing in the plate appearances. But 
Um, I think I think the two of them are going to be neck and neck, but I think Trout. I think Trout eventually will. Ev- I think Mookie's going to get a lot of early play, number one. But I think once drafts start in earnest, February and March, I think Trout will reestablish himself as a number one player. Number three uh, in the 2018 draft was Clayton Kershaw, the uh, obvious best mm. pitcher up until he wasn't. A lot of injury troubles there. I, I'm pretty sure we can agree he's not going to be a top 15 player in uh, 2019 drafts, but how far do you think Clayton Kershaw will drop? Yeah, now, now we, we docked NFBC at the beginning. Whenever I hear this, I, I'm, I'm immediately put in NFBC mode. And I know that that's a, a, I mean, it's, it's a significant part of our audience, but it's, you know, there's a lot more people that don't play than do play. Um, so, you know, when I, whenever I hear and answer a question like this, I'm almost always in NFBC mode. And what I think happens is I think yeah, we'll probably discuss a lot of their names. I think there's some pitchers that are going to come up ahead of him, and, and then it's just going to be, um, you know, I, I, I still want a pitcher. Ooh, Clayton Kershaw is, is now there. There's, you know, the upside is in the innings. So I think he's probably going to be, I don't see him falling into the third. I think in the NFBC anyway, someone's going to see him and they're going to say, you know what, I have a really good hitter. I can, you know, I can take the chance on Clayton Kershaw because another pitcher's not going to get back to me. So I kind of see him in the second round. We shall, um, I'm not, I'm probably not going to be the guy. I've been, you know, obviously a big Clayton Kershaw uh, fantasy fan for a long time. And I, I may be higher than some on him in the industry, but I don't think I'm going to be the guy that gets him in the NFPC. Number four, Jose Altuve. Uh, going into 2018, mm. there was some talk that maybe he could supplant Mike Trout uh, based on the last few years, especially the batting average and stolen bases with enough power. Uh, number four in 2018, I think he's going to be in the top 15 and probably should be, but I don't think he's going to be top five. What do you think? Yeah, I was actually one of the ones that had him as my number one player this year. So I, you know, I, I, I uh, will talk a lot in the off season. You know, what was, what was wrong with my analysis and and you know things like that. And I think fundamentally, uh, what was wrong with it, I didn't allow enough. There was more. There's more downside to Altuve in in that a lot of his the, the underlying numbers, they were consistent, but you still had to scratch your head and say, how is he doing that? And anytime you have to say that, I think you have to hedge that he might not do it anymore. And, I, and that's sort of what's happening. But, yeah, I think Altuve is going to be an interesting player because I think he's going to fall a ton. And I don't think he should fall that much. I think he's going to be a, around a wheel pick in a 15, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15. And I still think he's probably the back end of my top 10. So I think he's going to be an interesting player. Uh, so I think he's still a first-rounder, and I think he may fall more. And I think primarily, and, and rightfully so, talked about the power he's not running as much and if he's not running and he's still running a bit but he's not running as much i think that's what hurts to me that's what hurts him more than the than the power also he's uh, like trout has shown a little bit of uh, injury risk which wasn't there before he's missed yep. some time this year yep. and we all always have to think about that and i think we could say the same about number five from 2018 chris bryant has had uh. a lot of injury trouble and i'm wondering I don't know whether he's top 15 material or not. I'd hate to be drafting, you know, 9th or 10th or, or even 12th or 13th with Chris Bryant on the board. I'm officially fairly worried about his injury risk. I am too, and I think at some, at some years someone's going to get him in the high teens and he's going to be, you know, produce first-round numbers. Um, but I, as, as we, you know, as we go through the names, there are a lot of names that are going to jump up, and 
you know, if 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 we if he was barely a, a top fifteen pick this year, which he well, we have a number five. I thought he, I, I'm surprised his his ADP was that high. I thought it'd be a little bit later. But the point being, um, yeah, I, I think that he's gonna. There are enough players that people are gonna feel confident about, be it recency bias or not, that had good 2018s that Bryant will will fall at least into the high teens, if not into the twenties. And like you said, with uh, Clayton Kershaw, at that point, he starts to look like a bargain or a potential guy where there's a lot of upside because the downside is then built into the draft position. Uh, Number six, Nolan Arenado, uh, another third baseman, obviously going to be in. Can he climb up from that number six spot and threaten the top three or four? I think there will be people, if, 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 to me, he's the same guy. So if you had, you know, Arenado as a top three or four, saying, well, he's going to give me ridiculously good home runs, RBI and runs with a very good batting average, and I'll find my steals later, you can still say the same thing about him. I think he'll be in play at number three after Trout and Betts, and I think you know other people will take some other guys that we'll probably talk about ahead of him. So I think, you know, the, the you know, and someone, he's going to fall too. He's going to fall to 10. That's why his ADP is six. So he's going to go anywhere from third to 10th, and I think sixth is probably around where he'll land again. Number seven was Paul Goldschmidt. Uh, that was down a little bit from previous mm. years. Uh, Paul Goldschmidt's having a bit of a rebound, pretty clearly in the top 15, I think, for 2019. But where would you stack him? I'm going to have him the same place. Now, you know, we can look at the home runs. The humidor didn't matter. Look at the number of road home runs. The humidor is is affecting his 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 his, his home uh, production. So, to me, what's going to come down is the road homers. And I, to me, still 10, 11, 12, where I had him this year. The humidor is doing what it's supposed to do. The The Arizona lineup's down a bit, and it's, it's hard to say at this point what it will be next season. So, uh, you know, as far as run production goes, but he's not running quite as much. I mean, he's still going to have a good average. He's not hitting no homers. He's still going to hit 28, 29, you know, homers. He's just into the 30s are going to be tough. So, to me, he's 10th and 11th, and... uh Actually, it's sort of thinking about this a bit. I think a theme that we'll start to see is, in general, first basemen as a pool were rather disappointing this season. And I think we're going to see a lot of first basemen falling in general to be replaced by some of these other non-first basemen. I think I think people are going to start to talk about scarcity. I don't think it's even going to be scarcity. I think it's just going to be the the strength of the other positions is is just better. And uh, I think, you know, you're going to be, be able to get some first basements that fall that are still, you know, could easily bounce back and be first-round material. At number eight, uh, Manny Machado. Uh, I wasn't really sure about Manny Machado coming into this year because I was worried about the possibility that he might not steal a base. There was a, a last year, I think, and the year before, I think <laughs> maybe a total of four or five. He's got 13 steals this year to go with 33 home runs. He's got the 302 average. He's really been a top 15 player. I don't think there's much doubt about it. And then the question is, uh, does he stay in that middle of the of the first round for you? I think a little bit depends on where he lands, but I yeah I do think I do think he's still a first rounder for me, and because I, I you know I don't see he's not going to go to San Diego or San Francisco or something to that effect, so it's going to be in a good situation. He's going to be with a team that can score, and we'll, I guess we'll just have to see. If to me he's a guy that will run on a team that sort of runs, and he he won't run on a team that doesn't run. He's not a guy that you. 
you don't you know he'll he'll kind of go with the flow. So uh, it somewhat depends on the team he's on. If he happens to fall in a draft, I'm going to get him. But I don't know that he make. I don't know if he's like my top seven or eight. The other thing about Manny Machado that always surprises me is when I when I look at his record, I think, well, he's got to be getting close to his decline phase. He's 25 years old, and uh, so he could yeah. still be getting better. Yeah. Yeah, now there have been some studies that, that say a player comes in with his peak skills. I haven't seen an update on that study lately, but for sure. I, I think that there's a, uh, if, if not a decline, I, I mean, maybe there could be some growth, or he could just be where he is and... You know, skills are not stagnant. You know, there there are players that 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 uh, play at the upper end of their skill set, and you know the numbers get better. And and it's not that he's any better of a player; he just happened to perform maybe a little bit more luck or whatever. But um, so I think I think that's the phase that we're seeing Machado in at this point. And you know, it, it, you know, we like to think you know they're not automatons, so. He gets to the team, he plays shortstop and not third base where he wants to play. That might not be better by the numbers, but maybe in his head he's happier. The team is is, is doing what he wants, and you know that, that sort of could feed into a better season, we'll have to see. At number nine, uh, Bryce Harper. And I have to say, Todd, huh. this is a guy who causes a kind of a bit of argument every year. It's good for our business because we can all talk about whether right. Bryce Harper belongs in the top 15. But I, I was looking uh, earlier at his track record on dollar value and this is using baseball hq's dollar values and i'd be curious what yours were but he's only been above 30 dollars once in his entire career he was a 40 dollar player in 2015 because he stole a bunch of bags and hit 40 some home runs but other than that it's 20 18 20 27 last year 25 this year and when i look at that i think to myself why are people always thinking this guy's going to be a 30 plus dollar player which is really kind of the threshold for top 15 well it's the well if you if you ignore well actually this is the first year that you can't even use the playing time argument previously the answer was if he could stay healthy he could be the number one player in the game now with the shift and the and the low batting average and the whatnot now, now we have to add in the the the, the there is a product there's a pl- there's not just a playing time risk there's a production risk, um, so that that is going to be a big factor now. To me, you know, you kind of have to look at him in a granular nature and 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 look how bad the shift is. It is it more anecdotal or is the shift really the the cause? And is he going to if it is the cause, is he going to be able to? Um, do something to to avoid the shift and to me the the park is going to matter and where he ends up if 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 uh if it's a it's a home run park with a it's not going to he's not going to go to boston but the point being if he were to go to the red sox and and learn how to use the wall and and, and go to all fields i think it would be an advantage so you know if, if it's a if it's a friendly park where going the other way could feed into his power i think there's a better chance that he goes up to that level but at this point, in, you know, I, I call it one of the beauties of projection theory. Some people think it's more of a crutch, but this is, you know, it's now going to be factored in. The his down year this year, average wise, is now going to uh, limit, not some well, maybe not limit, but reduce the expectations without playing time involved. So that's just kind of naturally built in. But I, you know, to me, what I call it, you know, the elegance is because that's really the case. It's not a, it's not a cop out. That 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 is truly the case. We we have to now hedge production as well. So, yeah, he is uh, he is going to be a, a polar type player because if he has the MVP type V type season, 
you know, you, you, you know, I don't look for profit in the first couple rounds. Well, <laughs> you potentially can get it with Harper, but um, to me, there's enough talent that he's going to have to really fall. You know, I'm going to want two good players on my team before I pick him up, and I'll shake the hand of the person that beats me if uh, if he has a good season. Yeah, it sounds a lot to me like the Chris Bryant situation where if if Harper falls, there could be a lot of upside. That is, if the downside is built into where he falls too, then uh, then there's upside potential. But I suspect somebody's going to somebody always thinks Bryce Harper's going to have another forty dollar year, and uh, and he might. But it's not. I don't think it's the way to bet. Uh, staying in Washington, number ten was Trey Turner, and uh, Trey Turner. Somewhat quietly, uh, because Washington hasn't been playing well, he's having a really good season and looks like solid top 15 material to me. Yeah, I think he's going to be top 10 primarily because of the, he's still he's going to run. And, you know, we have to decide. I'm sure it'll be an offseason topic for us because we like to, you know, look beyond the players and, and sort of some of the, the game theory type of thing with, with how stolen bases are now. Not only are they down, but the top end players are not running as much as before. So the question is, is that going to be is that going to be the case, or are some of these guys that steal fifty or sixty are they going to go back to stealing that much? I don't think they are. And the repercussion uh, for fantasy wise is the the top two or three or four teams in the standings and stolen bases are not going to be as far away from the mid pack as they've been in other seasons. So you can you can get more points in the in the in the category at the top end without having to get one of those. 70 stolen base guys because there aren't going to be any but i think the point being turner's going to be highly sought after because he's not going to hurt you too much in power he's going to get the steals the the to me the batting average you know I, people that expected him hit 300 i think the 270 i don't think the 270 is a disappointment i think that the i think the 300 may have been a little bit of a reach expecting i think he's capable of hitting in the 280s and 290s but uh, if anything, people are going to look at that average. But I'm not as concerned about the average. The team, Washington's had a bit of a down year. We don't know what their lineup's going to be. We just talked about Harper. And, you know, Harper hasn't had that great a year. So just say, who's to say that that's even affecting the, um, the, what, what, the, what, the, uh, what, what Turner may be doing? Because re- replacing Harper, you may get a better performance if it's Victor Robles or whatever. So, but I do think the team context runs in RBIs will be a bit better next season for Turner. And he's also very young, I think 24 this year. So if we yeah. assume, as we usually do, that home run power develops as your body fills out and you get more physically mature, he's up around 17 home runs this year already. He's got an outside shot at finishing with 20. I think you could conceivably stay 20 to 25 next year, and if he maintains those bags, uh, he could lead the league in bags. It's not going to be 65 bags, but leading the league in bags really does set you up you want to have, where possible, these four category, five category guys in the early rounds, and he's one of them. Uh, number eleven was Josh Donaldson. I think we can agree he's nowhere near <laughs> the top. Uh, number twelve uh. is interesting to me, and that's Max Scherzer. Pretty clearly in amongst people who like pitchers, is he the top pitcher now that Clayton Kershaw is not? Yes, and he is the top pitcher because of the strikeouts and because of the Chris Sale, uh, the uh, you know his late season. Uh, injury woes with the shoulder, so that's enough of a risk. And as good as uh, you know, the Aaron Nola's and I don't well, Seferino has been a bit of a bit of a, a downslide, but mainly because of the strikeouts. And uh, again, NFBC centric myself, the uh, NFBC loves strikeouts. So just because of the strikeouts, Scherzer will be the number one pitcher off the board. He's going to go top five. And some, I mean, 
if you want a pitcher, if you, you know, if you have a bad draw, well, you know, maybe not a bad, you know, if you have a, a top five pick or, you know, top six, seven pick and you wanted to take a pitcher, you know, you're, you're going to take Scherzer anywhere. You know, to me, to me, he's going to be in play at number three. If you want to pit, you know, if you have one or two, bite the bullet. You got to go with you got to go with Trout or Betts. But if you want a pitcher early and you're at the number three spot, you know, you got you got to take Scherzer because you know if, if that's what if that's what your strategy is. So, and that's what people that's why Kershaw was where he was. So I have a feeling we're going to see Scherzer take that spot. He's a bit older. This time next year, it may not be Scherzer, but at least for one more year, I, I think you got to hand it to um to, to Scherzer and. Uh, and give him the benefit of the uh, to be the first pitcher off the board. And when I looked at his uh, Baseball HQ stat line, a $48 player this year, uh, the highest of any player in, in either league in any position, and that means that if you're uh, if you're picking third and you you expect Betts and Trout to be in the sort of low 40s, you could easily be getting the most valuable player in fantasy baseball with the third pick or lower. And keep in mind, as we talk about too, getting a little nerdy here, that that's this is based on a seventy thirty or sixty nine thirty one or whatever split. That 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 forty eight dollars is really seventy dollars. So it's just because uh, because of the way that we conventionally price players, if you split it fifty fifty, that's closer to a seventy dollar player. It is a, a a very great opportunity to dominate a lot of categories in pitching because of the tremendous whip, the great strikeouts, uh, sub three, well, sub two and a half ERA. I think is is a mm-hmm. pretty sure thing, and a lot of innings. So those decimals really get well established. Max Scherzer sets you up in a lot of different ways. Really, what you would truly call a foundational player. Uh, number thirteen in the ADPs was Anthony Rizzo. Uh, I'm not sure about Anthony Rizzo. Again, I see some injury risk here, and I also see some possible performance risk. Where's Anthony Rizzo on your list? Yep, he's one of the, fir- the disappointing first basemen. To me, falls at least half a round. I mean, he's obviously into the second round. How far into the second round, I don't know for sure. But I'm not. I still think he's, he's going to be a very good player. I think he's just at the bottom end of his skill set. I don't think he's running as much. And the thing with Rizzo, when you talk about the injuries. And I don't know that it's, I'm taking Jeff Bagwell back in the day. This guy gets hit over 20 times a year. One of these years, it's going to be on the hand. He's going to miss, you know, he's going to miss several weeks with a broken hand or broken wrist or, or whatever. Worse. So to me, this has always been that kind of a built-in, uh, uh, um, not so much hedge, but concern with Rizzo anyway, just how much he gets hit by pitches. So, yeah, he's going to follow the mid to back end of the second round and just as easily could you know, jump back into the back end of the first round production-wise. I think a lot of it might uh, hinge on his ability to steal some bases. His only time above $30 on HQ's list was back in 2015. He stole uh, 17 bags, and uh, this year that stolen base total is going to be probably under 10. That's a pretty significant difference for a guy that you want that kind of four-category contribution from. Uh, Number 14, Madison Bumgarner, pretty clearly out. We can agree. Yeah, I think he's going to be neck and neck with Kershaw. I think at this point, although Bumgarner, he he hasn't he hasn't looked like Bumgarner. Whether that's because he just, I mean, at this point, you'd think he'd be back long enough that you know that that he'd be looking like his old self, unless unless this is his new self. We forget. Not so much we forget about, but I think it's time to start considering that this 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 guy, he's not all that old, but he's got a lot of mileage on that arm. 
And you had some playoff, a couple of, you know, I don't remember if it was in the first playoff run, but at least two playoff runs, and not just a playoff run. I mean, they were, you know, they were riding him. You know, he, you know, nothing rides like a rental. They were, they were, uh, they were riding this guy, and uh, and and deep into games and pitching three games a series and the whatnot. So at some point that has to has to do it, take some toll. So I think we might be might be seeing that with Bumgarner, um, but you know he's still. Once once the sort of first set of pitching goes, and then you're into the Clayshaw Bumgarner, Kershaw Bumgarner, I think they are going to be jump up at least an NFBC board uh, because just because people don't want to get stuck without pitching, but um, just watching him and you know not even numbers cutting, just watching him pitch, he doesn't look like the same guy. You know, he's not a he strikes out a lot of guys. I mean, he's not necessarily known for that, but I, you know, okay, second and third, two outs, he's going to punch this guy out. I don't get that feel this year. I don't either. And uh, something you said uh, really twigged with me, which was the real heavy workload he had, in, especially in that one year in the World Series where he started games, he was relieving in games, he pitched the last f- yeah. however many innings on short rest to win the series. Uh, all of those kind of things kind of are separate from the general idea of workload. I did a study for Baseball HU a couple of years ago trying to check out whether pitchers who went deep into the playoffs, so they had a bunch of extra starts and innings, showed any after effects in the subsequent season, and they didn't. But that was not the same kind of usage. That was still kind of starting every fourth or fifth day, getting your regular rest, pitching in one game every so often and not in three games in five days kind of thing. And I think uh, maybe Verlander, although he certainly didn't show any ill effects this year from it, there are pitchers in the playoffs who get used under these high stress situations with short rest and and tough leverage situations and i think maybe that's something we should be looking at as a potential investigation yes to me it's not so much and i think it's an important study to see how they do the next year but you know i'm i'm thinking more of just a career accumulation of innings that sometimes we only consider you know we look at the regular season you know, he, I don't know. I don't think it's at the point where you can add a full season yet. But you know, you're you, you're probably close to where you can add, you know, at least half a season worth of pitching. And we can. Uh, I don't know enough to know if it's if it's the high stress. If it's you know, if you add that more or whatever. But the the mere fact that that, that it, with all the playoff games and and, and whatnot. It's going to be at least 16, which is half a season. So we're close to at least, you know, he's pitched almost another full season, you know, whatever time, you know, the time frame, whatever. But still, there are certain, you know, if every pitch takes a little bit out of the arm, he's thrown more pitches than other people. So to me, I'm not necessarily saying next year, but uh, a career basis. I think we're seeing a little bit of that with Felix, Felix Hernandez, in that the number of pitches he threw. He didn't, he, they didn't, Seattle didn't, win the World Series, obviously, but they had a couple of playoff runs during, you know, during his first 10 years, so he probably has another season or so added on to his pitch count. Now, you know, a guy like Verlander did did as well with uh, Detroit had a couple of playoff runs, but, you know, it's also pitcher by pitcher, individual basis. You know, some guys can absorb it a little bit more and, and, and others maybe can't, but um, I just, I do think it's a, I think it's a factor and I do think you're right. It, it, it involves further investigation. But the problem is the, the sample of, you know, I mean, whatever the results are, we're going to have to, the caveat's going to be, well, only 10 pitchers, you know, fit the category. Right. You know, how many pitchers are actually, you know, going to, are there to actually be studied? So there is, you know, you're going to get a result, but it, there's still going to be that, yeah, you know, 
potential sample size problem. I've done investigations in the past too, Todd, where I was looking at career uh, pitcher use and uh, cumulative innings totals. And the problem is, while there is a general trend, there's a ton of outliers. And and there's no predictability about the outliers. They just become outliers. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, you've got a 36-year-old guy with a million innings on his arm. And you think, well, this guy's going to be dead his next year. And he goes out and wins a Cy Young. Roger Clemens, you know, Nolan Ryan, these kind of guys just appear. uh, And in Clemens' case, appear and uh there's just really it seems there's no rhyme or reason to it a gaylord perry type guy too i mean you know there are guys who pitch into their 40s but and there's a lot of guys who are done at 24 so it's really a difficult thing to research out and finally number 15 from the adps carlos correa uh, I think he's going to be pretty much a sure thing to be out of the top 15 and i'm curious where you think he'll land but um, i think he hmm. he reminds me of bryce harper in this way Every year, somebody thinks this is going to be the year that uh, Carlos Correa puts up a $35 season. And by HQ's 5x5 measures, at least, his peak is 21. Yeah, he's an interesting player. I've uh, talked a bit about him. Um, I, I think part of his allure back, you know, back, back, back a couple years ago was the stolen bases. And even though he's still young enough, if we think, you know, the age of running – I just I think Houston just not going to want him to run very much between the injuries, and quite frankly they just don't need him to. They, they, their offense should be powerful enough. You know Altuve is going to run because that's part of his game. Um, but you know a guy like Correa I don't think he has to, and I don't the injury risk because he's gotten hurt running a couple times, uh, the hand and the whatnot. So I think he's still going to be a fine player, and he may he may be the old proverbial better at real baseball than fantasy baseball just because of the uh, the, the lack of steals and, and the whatnot. But, yeah, I do think he's out. I'm not giving up on him as a player. I think he's had some injury problems, but that is also a problem, staying healthy. So I think uh, Correa is another guy that it, it's it, – it may be that you know in five years that we look back at, at, at his early part of the career. Remember, he kept getting hurt. Now he's you know a, a perennial top ten player. We may be t- we I think we still could be doing that t- talking about that about Correa, but I uh, it's kind of weird. Altuve's gotten a lot of heat. Correa hasn't gotten as much sort of you know Twitter buzz for for how poor his season's been in a fantasy sense. So. I think someone's still going to draft the name in the second round, but I don't think it'll be me. The other thing about Correa that makes me think that maybe those stolen bases are gone and not coming back is he's really tall. And and I I just don't remember in my when I look back in my mind uh, I just don't remember that many tall guys being long term successful base dealers. Do you, can you think of anybody? I, I think of Eric Davis had that same kind of build. Uh, I don't remember that he was particularly tall, but he was very lean in the way that Correa is. But can you think of anybody who was a, a tall ball player who stole thirty bases in a year or twenty five? Not really my specialty because I this is why I say the. Um the internet was invented for me to store all this information. I think, I mean, I look at, I mean, LeMay, LeMay, who really isn't the guy you're talking about. I mean, he, he can steal 20, but he's not known as a, excuse me, as, as, a, as a stealer. I mean, it's, it, this isn't to say that tall guys can't be fast either, because obviously they can. You look at some, you know, basketball and football players. So, yeah, I think, I think there's something, I think there might be a, a little something to that. And the other thing about it is it may not be with, with with base stealing, it's not always the speed, it's the the quickness and I, I don't know, you know, profiling here, but maybe the first couple steps of a smaller player 
are are he gets up to speed faster than some of the the taller players might. I don't I don't know if that's true or not. It could be just you know kind of making stuff up here, whatever. But uh, that's interesting. Yeah, and, and it's one of those you, you don't. It's one of those, you know, interesting kind of studies where no one will think to do, but wow, that may actually, you know, it may actually mean something. I think you, when you mentioned quickness, I think that's what I was getting at, especially as a guy gets a little older, he's he's listed at 215, I think he's probably more like 225. It's just, you know, it's a lot of mass to get moving t- towards uh, second base, and you have to do it quickly. You have to get to up to top speed quickly. I think Ken Seiko was maybe the last guy who was a really... T- tallish big heavy guy strong guy who was a, a really good base stealer but we know what was going on there as well so i i don't know i i just don't see carlos correa as a first rounder and i i until somebody proves me wrong i can see him in the second because of the package of skills but i might even be thinking about that too if i could find a guy with you know 20 home run power and and 10 bags or 15 bags i'd be way more interested um you know alex bregman versus carlos correa i think bregman's gonna be, be drafted sooner. And that gives us a topic for next week. Uh, this has been so interesting. We may maybe go through the list of likely guys or possible guys who have the potential to move up into the first round. We'll talk about that next sure. week. It's always great to have a topic a week in advance. We both have to, now we can spend the, the, the week not worrying about it. All right, Todd, thanks a million. And uh, <laughs> we do have a topic for next week, so I can hardly wait to talk to you then. <laughs> All right, talk to you later. Todd Zola writes for Masters Ball, ESPN, and Rotowire, and appears here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Now it's time for Master Notes, my weekly discussion about baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I want to talk about the August Quiz. In a venerable and time-honored tradition that began way back in, well, July, Master Notes has been offering a monthly quiz, asking intrepid, well-informed, intuitive, and bored fantasy players about player performance in the month just past. Due to the outpouring of enthusiastic support, I once got an email, the quiz this month will be a little longer, 25 questions instead of the traditional 20, with 12 about hitters, up from 10, 9 on starters, up from 7, and 4 about relievers, formerly 3. I'll give you about 5 seconds to answer after each question is finished, but if you want more thinking time, just pause the podcast. Hey, you're in control. The music in the background is something I've mentioned and played before here on Baseball HQ Radio. It's Desafinado, the bossa nova classic, but a different version. Yes, this one still has Stan Getz on tenor sax, but he's playing in a session setting from 1962 with American jazz guitar legend Charlie Bird and Brazilian guitarist Antonio Carlos Robim, who also co-wrote the song. So let's begin with the hitters. The top five on base percentages for the month included Justin Turner at the top of the table at 491, with Mookie Betts third at 460, JD Martinez at 453, and Paul Goldschmidt at 444. Which American League East outfielder was second? The on base star in August was Tampa outfielder Malik Smith at 476 on base percentage for the month. Question 2. 48 qualified hitters, those with 81 or more plate appearances, had on base percentages under 300 in August. Which star was not below 300 on base percentage for the month? Jake Bowers, Charlie Blackman, Carlos Correa, Brett Gardner, Yulieski Gurriel, or Evan Longoria? 
all of these hitters had on-base percentages under 300 for August. Blackman was the highest in the group at 293, while Correa was the low man at just 235. Question 3. Chris Davis of Baltimore led all batters by striking out in 40% of his plate appearances. Davis was also top four in August strikeouts in general, with 41 strikeouts. Which three other hitters had 40 strikeouts in August? The other three Whiffmeisters were Joan Moncada and Michael Conforto with 42 each, and Giancarlo Stanton with an even 40. Question 4. Two hitters, a National League East infielder and an American League Central outfielder, had more than 100 plate appearances and fewer than 10 strikeouts. Who were they? The Mets infielder Jeff McNeil had eight whiffs in 111 plate appearances, while Cleveland outfielder Michael Brantley also had eight strikeouts in 116 plate appearances. Question 5. Michael Brantley also led Major League Baseball in I-Ratio with 1.8 walks for every strikeout. Other standouts in this regard included Alex Bregman at 1.6, Jose Ramirez at 1.4, Malik Smith again at 1.2, and Anthony Rizzo at 1.2, as well as one National League Central catcher and an American League West infielder. Who are these sharp-eyed aces? hitters with eye ratios over one were Cincinnati catcher Tucker Barnhart at 1.3 walks per strikeout and Angels Hall of Famer to be Albert Pujols at 1.1. Interestingly, Pujols' keen eye did not translate to production. All the other batters had OPSs over 800, Smith and Rizzo over 1,000, while Pujols scraped to just a 563. Question 6. Three batters had 2.0 or more wins over replacement, the Fangraphs version, F-War. Justin Turner and Mookie Betts were first and third, with 2.2 and 2.0 F-War, respectively. What American League West infielder was second with 2.1 F-War? You have to remember that F-War and other WAR measurements include defense. So little surprise that Oakland third baseman Matt Chapman was second with 2.1 FR for August. Question 7. Which National League Central outfielder was the only big league hitter to swing at more than half the pitches he saw outside the strike zone? The free swinger was Pittsburgh outfielder Corey Dickerson, who swung at 53% of the pitches he saw that were outside the zone. Five hitters were under 20% in this critical plate discipline metric. Andrew McCutcheon at 18%, Aaron Hicks at 17%, Logan Forsythe at 16%, Juan Soto at 16%, and your leader Alex Bregman at 15%. Question 8. The August top 10 for home runs included Oakland outfielder Chris Davis with 10 and Toronto first baseman Kendris Morales with 9. In what batted ball metric were both Davis and Morales in the bottom 5? Both Davis and Morales were bottom 5 in line drive rate. 
Davis managed just 9% line drives on balls in play, while Morales was at 11%. Another premium hitter, the fine Washington rookie outfielder Juan Soto, was also in the bottom five at 11%, but it didn't help him in the home run department. He had just three for the month. If you're wondering, the highest line drive for the month belonged to Atlanta first baseman Freddie Freeman at 37%. Question 9. Speaking of home runs, it can be fairer to assess counting stat production by normalizing to a fixed number of plate appearances. I like the 600 plate appearances that is a pretty normal season complement. Using home runs per 600 plate appearances, both Morales at 56 and Davis at 50 were in the top five. So was veteran outfielder David Peralta. He led the pack at 57 home runs per 600 plate appearances, and Christian Yelich tied for third at 53. The other two in the top five in this category were young players, one of them, in fact, a rookie. Who were they? The two youngsters in the top five home runs per 600 were Houston first baseman Tyler White, whose rate mounted to 53, and rookie Atlanta outfielder Ronald Acuna at 50. Both Acuna and White were in the top five in home runs as well, Acuna with 11 and White with 10. Question 10. Six players had seven or more stolen bases in the month. They included recognized speedsters like Malik Smith, him again, with nine, Jonathan Villar and Trey Turner with eight each, and Billy Hamilton with seven. Which two National League shortstops rounded out the speedy sextet? Earlier in the podcast, we were talking about Colorado shortstop Trevor Story, who had all those home runs. Well, he also tied with Malik Smith for that August stolen base title with nine swipes. The Mets shortstop Ahmed Rosario tied for fifth with Hamilton, each having seven. Interestingly, both Hamilton and Rosario had four caught stealings. Question 11. Out of the 178 qualifying hitters, did more of them get hit by a pitch, or did more of them not get hit by a pitch? The hit-by-pitch brigade had 107 members, led by Los Angeles third baseman Justin Turner, who got plonked six times. Just 71 hitters managed to get out of the way and had zero hit-by-pitches. Question 12. The list of most intentional walks starts with Cubs outfielder Kyle Schwarber, who was intentionally passed seven times. Then you see sluggers like Matt Carpenter with six, J.D. Martinez with five, and Jose Ramirez with four. Which National League East infielder is tied with Ramirez with four intentional bases on balls? Well, it might be hard to believe, but Atlanta shortstop Dansby Swanson had the four intentional passes. That's what 263 plate appearances batting eighth will do. On to the starting pitchers. Question one. In the dumbest fantasy category of them all, wins, 10 qualifying starting pitchers with 26 or more innings were tied atop the August leaderboard with four wins apiece. Four of those 10 pitched for National League Central teams. Who were they? if you were tempted to use wins as a piece of evidence to indicate quality pitching, you might want to mention Cole Hamels of the Cubs, or maybe even Jack Flaherty of St. Louis. But then somebody might come back to you and say, how do you explain Julius Chassin of Milwaukee and some guy called Austin Gomber of St. Louis? 
Gomber had the second highest run support per nine innings at 10.4, a run behind Brian Johnson of Boston. The other four-win starters, by the way, Corey Kluber, Zach Wheeler, Carlos Carrasco, Kevin Gausman, obviously enjoying the new scenery, J.A. Happ, ditto, and Blake Snell. Eight starters had at least five starts and 26-plus innings pitched, but came out of the month winless. Mike Leak, Tyler Glasnow, Pablo Lopez, Felix Pena, Masahiro Tanaka, Wade Miley, Jake Arrieta, and Trevor Richards. Question 2. The median starting pitcher ERA for the month was 344, but 13 starters had ERAs under 2 for the month. Three of these six starting pitchers, Clay Buchholz, Herman Marquez, Mike Fultonevich, Kyle Freeland, Carlos Rodon, and Max Scherzer were in that elite sub-2 performance group. Three were not. Pick which were which. The three starters under 2 ERA for August were Buchholz, Rodon, and Scherzer. The three above 2 were still pretty good. Voltanevich was at 2.09 for the month, Marquez at 2.14, and Freeland at 2.15. Question 3. A pitching metric widely used by many analysts is strikeout percent minus walk percent. The median strikeout minus walk for August starters was 16%. At the top of the table, four pitchers had differences of 30 percentage points or more. The top three, Justin Verlander at 33.3%, Blake Snell at 30.8%, and Jacob deGrom at 30.5%. Which starter from the National League West was fourth in strikeout percent minus walk percent at a nifty 302 Fourth place in the August strikeout minus walk race went to starting pitcher Patrick Corbin of Arizona. He struck out 32.5% of the batters he faced and walked just 2.4% to get to that 30.2 subtotal. Question 4. One American League East pitcher actually had a negative strikeout minus walk for the month. Who was he? Well, you probably boiled this one down to Blue Jays or Orioles starters, and wisely so. The negative strikeout minus walk difference was posted by Andrew Kashner of Baltimore. He struck out just 8.4% of his batters and walked 9.7% for a strikeout minus walk difference of minus 1.3. If you had guessed Ryan Barucki of Toronto, you didn't miss by much. He was in just above break-even at plus 1.5%. Question 5. If you divide an August starting pitcher's ERA by his whip, you get a factor right around three. That is, ERA is typically three times whip. Cole Hamels had the lowest such ratio in August at just 0.69. His ERA was actually lower than his whip. Two other pitchers had ERA whip below 1.3. Who were they? And here's a hint for you. Their teams are in the same state. The other two pitchers with ERA whip ratios below 1.3 were in Pennsylvania. Aaron Nola of Philadelphia had a 1.13 rate, while Trevor Williams of Pittsburgh was in at 116. Question 6. There was a three-way tie for second in starting pitchers hitting batters. Charlie Morton of Houston, Jacob Junis of Kansas City, and David Price of Boston plunked three batters apiece. Which National League West starter led Major League Baseball in hit-by-pitches for August? 
Well, maybe Zach Godley of Arizona needs to talk to his teammate Patrick Corbin about control. He nailed four batters in August. Question 7. A sometimes useful measure of pitcher effectiveness is hard contact rate allowed, the percentage of balls in play that are deemed hard by observers. The stat is not currently based on StatCast exit velocity data. Two starting pitchers limited opponent hard contact to under 30% in August. Noah Syndergaard was one of them with 17% hard contact. Which National League Central starter had a hard contact that was even lower? Well, here's a surprise. Jose Quintana of the Cubs limited opposing batters to just 15% hard contact on balls in play. The median among the starters in the month was 35%. Two pitchers allowed hard contact on more than half of their balls in play. Dan Straley of Miami was at 54%. And surprisingly, Madison Bumgarner of San Francisco was just over 50 Question 8. Another metric making its way into the analytic environment is chase rate outside the zone swings as a percentage of all swings. The median rate for the month was 32% in a range from 23% at the bottom to 41% at the top. Three starters had chase rates of 40% or higher in August. Brett Anderson number one at that 41% I mentioned. The next two pitched for the same team in the National League Central. The bottom two came from that same National League Central division but two different teams. Who were they? Jamison Tyon and Joe Musgrove, both of Pittsburgh, had chase rates of 40% in August. The two low ballers were Matt Harvey of Cincinnati and Freddie Peralta of Milwaukee, both at 23%. Question 9. Another important metric for pitchers is swinging strike rate, the percentage of all pitches that result in swings and misses. The median rate in August was around 10%. Blake Snell led all qualified starting pitchers in August at 18%. Which American League East starter, already mentioned in this quiz, had the lowest rate? Toronto starter Ryan Barucki induced swings on just 5% of his pitches in August, half the median rate for starters and 13 percentage points behind the leader. Finally, let's go to the relief pitchers, or what we call the Edwin Diaz section. Question 1. Edwin Diaz of Seattle had 10 saves in August to lead Major League Baseball. Three other American League relievers tied for second with seven apiece. Who were they? Blake Trinan of Oakland, Ken Giles of Toronto, and Jose Leclerc of Texas shared second place behind Diaz. Question 2. Leclerc and Diaz tied for the August strikeout lead at 51% each. Dellen Batances was next at 49%, followed by what American League Central reliever? Sitting fourth in reliever strikeout rate at a nifty 47% was White Sox left-hander Jace Fry. Question 3. Among relievers who faced at least 40 batters, Diaz, Ryan Presley of Houston, and Rizal Iglesias of Cincinnati led Major League Baseball in August in what base performance indicator? Diaz, Presley, and Iglesias had control ratios, that's walks per nine, of zero. Scott Oberg of Colorado also walked nobody, but didn't quite make the completely arbitrary 40 batter minimum. The median control ratio was 2.7 walks per nine. 
Jordan Hicks of St. Louis and Jordan Lyles of San Diego and Milwaukee each faced more than 50 batters and walked 7.1 and 7.2 per nine, respectively. And question four. Diaz also led all relievers with an 83% first pitch strike rate. The rest of the top ten in this metric included one of Diaz's Seattle teammates and three Astros. Who? Diaz's Seattle teammate Nick Vincent was 10th in August first pitch strike at 72%. The three Astros in the top 10 were Joe Smith, 2nd at 80, Roberto Osuna, 6th at 75, and Presley, who was 9th at 73%. The median in the metric was 62%. At the bottom of this particular heap, the bottom four were all under 50% and included Justin Anderson of Los Angeles, Cleveland closer Cody Allen, Yankees setup guy David Robertson, and Kansas City reliever Brian Flynn. And that's our quiz for August. To calculate your score, add up your correct answers. Deduct your agent days, multiply by Babe Ruth's OPS for his career, multiply that by my agent days, and then keep it all to yourself. Remember, there are no prizes, although if you come to First Pitch Arizona and mention the quiz to me at a ballpark, I'll let you buy me a beer. You can also buy me a beer if you don't mention the quiz, which, come to think of it, might be the best solution for all of us. Part of this quiz is just for fun, trying to figure out in what way Julius Chassin could possibly be better than Jacob deGrom. But part of it is to reinforce an important concept in fantasy evaluation. In one month, anything can happen. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick Davitt, Masternotes columnist at BaseballHQ.com. You can also read Masternotes for free at the Baseball HQ website. And of course, we also have Masternotes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, September 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 34 of the 2018 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky, And our pitcher matchups were presented by Baseball HQ analyst Greg Fishwick. Thanks as well to Todd Zola, our regular guest on Talk with Todd. I'm Patrick Davitt, your Masternotes commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow me on my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes or Stitcher or Pocket Cast, wherever you get your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating because that helps us find new listeners and that helps us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with the next news and comment edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. 
The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.